Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Lightspeed. Hi, and welcome to the Lightspeed Magazine Story Podcast. I'm your host, John Joseph Adams. Our story this week is Tight Little Stitches in a Dead Man's Back by Joe R. Lansdale. It's read for you by Stefan Brednicki. Joe R. Lansdale is the author of over 30 novels and 200 short pieces, both fiction and nonfiction. He has received the Edgar Award, seven Bram Stoker Awards, the British Fantasy Award, and many others. His novella, Bubba Hotep, was made into a movie of the same name. We're doing a little something different here at Lightspeed this month. Because October is Halloween month, and Halloween is a time for scary stories, we thought it would be appropriate to make October Horror Month here at Lightspeed. But never fear, we haven't changed our scope completely. Each story in this issue is still science fiction. It's just that you'll be getting your daily dose of Sense of Wonder, but also a liberal helping of What the Frack Was That as well. And before we get to the story, I just want to issue a brief content advisory for this story. The story contains mature content, including violent and graphic imagery that some readers may find disturbing. So keep that in mind before you listen. I hope you enjoy the story, and if you do, I'll help you go to our website at lightspeedmagazine.com and leave a comment. Just click on Fiction, find this story, and then leave a comment there. Or if you'd like to help spread the word, go to iTunes, find the Lightspeed Magazine Story Podcast, and leave a review or rating there. Well, that about does it for this week's intro. So without further ado, let's make the jump to Lightspeed. Tight Little Stitches in a Dead Man's Back by Joe R. Lansdale For Ardath Mayer From the Journal of Paul Martyr Boom! That's a little scientist joke and the proper way to begin this. As for the purpose of my notebook, I'm uncertain. Perhaps to organize my thoughts and not to go insane. No, probably so I can read it and feel as if I'm being spoken to. Maybe neither of those reasons. It doesn't matter. I just want to do it, and that is enough. What's new? Well, Mr. Journal, after all these years, I've taken up martial arts again, or at least the forms and calisthenics of Taekwondo. There is no one to spar with here in the lighthouse, so the forms have to do. There is Mary, of course, but she keeps all her sparring verbal. And as of late, there is not even that. I long for her to call me a son of a bitch. Anything. Her hatred of me has cured to a hundred percent perfection, and she no longer finds it necessary to speak. The tight lines around her eyes and mouth, the emotional heat that radiates from her body like a dreadful cold sore looking for a place to lie down is voice enough for her. She lives only for the moment when she, the cold sore, can attach herself to me with her needles, ink, and thread. She lives only for the design on my back. That's all I live for as well. 
Mary adds to it nightly, and I enjoy the pain. The tattoo is of a great blue mushroom cloud, and in the cloud, etched ghost-like, is the face of our daughter, Ray. Her lips are drawn tight, eyes are closed, and there are stitches deeply pulled to simulate the lashes. When I move fast and hard, they rip slightly, and Ray cries bloody tears. That's one reason for the martial arts. The hard practice of them helps me to tear the stitches so my daughter can cry. Tears are the only thing I can give her. Each night I bear my back eagerly to Mary and her needles. She pokes deep, and I moan in pain as she moans in ecstasy and hatred. She adds more color to the design, works with brutal precision to bring Ray's face out in sharper relief. After ten minutes, she tires and will work no more. She puts the tools away, and I go to the full-length mirror on the wall. The lantern on the shelf flickers like a jack-o'-lantern in a high wind, but there is enough light for me to look over my shoulder and examine the tattoo. And it is beautiful. Better each night as Ray's face becomes more and more defined. Ray. Ray. God, can you forgive me, sweetheart? But the pain of the needles, wonderful and cleansing as they are, is not enough. So I go sliding, kicking, and punching along the walkway around the lighthouse, feeling Ray's red tears running down my spine, gathering in the waistband of my much-stained canvas pants. Winded, unable to punch and kick any more, I walk over to the railing and call down into the dark. Hungry? In response to my voice, a chorus of moans rises up to greet me. Later I lie on my pallet, hands behind my back, examine the ceiling, and try to think of something worthy to write in you, Mr. Journal. So seldom is there anything. Nothing seems truly worthwhile. Bored of this, I roll on my side and look at the great light that once shone out to the ships but is now forever snuffed. Then I turn the other direction and look at my wife sleeping on her bunk, her naked ass turned toward me. I try to remember what it was like to make love to her, but it is difficult. I only remember that I miss it. For a long moment I stare at my wife's ass as if it is a mean mouth about to open and reveal teeth. Then I roll on my back again, stare at the ceiling, and continue this routine until daybreak. Mornings I greet the flowers, their bright red and yellow blooms bursting from the heads of long dead bodies that will not rot. The flowers open wide to reveal their little black brains and their feathery feelers, and they lift their blooms upward and moan. I get a wild pleasure out of this. For one crazed moment I feel like a rock singer appearing before his starry-eyed audience. When I tire of the game I get the binoculars, Mr. Journal, and examine the eastern plains with them as if I expect a city to materialize there. The most interesting thing I have seen on those plains is a herd of large lizards thundering north. For a moment I considered calling Mary to see them, but I didn't. The sound of my voice, the sight of my face, upsets her. She loves only the tattoo and is interested in nothing more. When I finish looking at the plains, I walk to the other side. To the west, where the ocean was, there is now nothing but miles and miles of cracked black sea bottom. 
Its only resemblance to a great body of water are the occasional dust storms that blow out of the west like dark tidal waves and wash the windows black at midday. And the creatures, mostly mutated whales, monstrously large, sluggish things, abundant now where once they were near extinction. Perhaps the whales should form some sort of Greenpeace organization for humans now. <laughs> what do you think, Mr. Journal? No need to answer. Just another one of those little scientist jokes. These whales crawl across the sea bottom near the lighthouse from time to time, and if the mood strikes them, they rise on their tails and push their heads near the tower and examine it. I keep expecting one to flop down on us, crushing us like bugs, but no such luck. For some unknown reason, the whales never leave the cracked seabed to venture onto what we formerly called the shore. It's as if they live in invisible water and are bound by it. A racial memory, perhaps. Or maybe there's something in that cracked black soil they need. I don't know. Besides the whales, I suppose I should mention I saw a shark once. It was slithering along at a great distance, and the tip of its fin was winking in the sunlight. I've also seen some strange legged fish and some things I could not put a name to. I'll just call them whale food, since I saw one of the whales dragging his bottom jaw along the ground one day, scooping up the creatures as they tried to beat a hasty retreat. Exciting, huh? Well, that's how I spend my day, Mr. Journal, roaming about the tower with my glasses, coming in to write in you, waiting anxiously for Mary to take hold of that kit and give me the signal. The mere thought of it excites me to erection. I suppose you could call that our sex act together. And what was I doing the day they dropped the big one? Glad you asked that, Mr. Journal. Really, I am. I was doing the usual. Up at six, did the shit shower and shave routine, had breakfast, got dressed, tied my tie. I remember doing the latter and not very well in front of the bedroom mirror and noticing that I had shaved poorly. A hunk of dark beard decorated my chin like a bruise. Rushing to the bathroom to remedy that, I opened the door as Ray, naked as the day of her birth, was stepping from the tub. Surprised, she turned to look at me. An arm went over her breasts, and a hand, like a dove settling into a fiery bush, covered her pubic area. Embarrassed, I closed the door with an excuse me and went about my business, unshaved. It was an innocent thing. An accident nothing sexual. But when I think of her now, more often than not, that is the first image that comes to mind. I guess it was the moment I realized my baby had grown into a beautiful woman. That was also the day she went off to her first day of college and got to see, ever so briefly, the end of the world. And it was the day the triangle, Mary, Ray, and myself, shattered. If my first memory of Ray alone is that day naked in the bathroom, my foremost memory of us as a family is when Ray was six. We used to go to the park, and she would ride the merry-go-round, swing, teeter-totter, and finally my back. I want to piggy, Daddy. We would gallop about until my legs were rubber. Then we would stop at the bench where Mary sat waiting. I would turn my back to the bench so Mary could take Ray down, but always before she did, she would reach around from behind, caressing Ray, pushing her tight against my back and Mary's hands would touch my chest. God, but if I could describe those hands. 
She still has hands like that after all these years. I feel them fluttering against my back when she works. They are long and sleek and artistic, naturally soft like the belly of a baby rabbit. And when she held Ray and me that way, I felt that no matter what happened in the world, we three could stand against it and conquer. But now the triangle is broken and the geometry gone away. So the day Ray went off to college and was fucked into oblivion by the dark pelvic thrust of the bomb, Mary drove me to work. Me, Paul Martyr, big shot with the crew. One of the finest, brightest young minds in the industry, always teaching, inventing, and improving on our nuclear threat because, as we'd often joke, we cared enough to send only the very best. When we arrived at the guard booth, I had out my pass, but there was no one to take it. Beyond the chain-link gate, there was a wild melee of people running, screaming, falling down. I got out of the car and ran to the gate. I called out to a man I knew as he ran by. When he turned, his eyes were wild and his lips were flecked with foam. The missiles are flying, he said, and he was gone, running madly. I jumped in the car, pushed Mary aside, and stomped the gas. The Buick leaped into the fence, knocking it asunder. The car spun, slammed into the edge of a building, and went dead. I grabbed Mary's hand, pulled her from the car, and we ran toward the great elevators. We made one just in time. There were others running for it as the door closed and the elevator went down. I still remember the echo of their fists on the metal just as it began to drop. It was like the rapid heartbeat of something dying. And so the elevator took us to the world of Down Under, and we locked it off. There we were in a five-mile layered city designed not only as a massive office and laboratory, but as an impenetrable shelter. It was our special reward for creating the poisons of war. There was food, water, medical supplies, films, books, you name it. Enough to last 2,000 people for a 100 years. Of the 2,000 it was designed for, perhaps 1,100 made it. The others didn't run fast enough from the parking lot or the other buildings, or they were late for work, or maybe they had called in sick. Perhaps they were the lucky ones. They might have died in their sleep, or while they were having a morning quickie with the spouse, or perhaps as they lingered over that last cup of coffee. Because you see, Mr. Journal, down under was no paradise. Before long, suicides were epidemic. I considered it myself from time to time. People slashed their throats, drank acid, took pills. It was not unusual to come out of your cubicle in the morning and find people dangling from pipes and rafters like ripe fruit. There were also the murders. Most of them performed by a crazed group who lived in the deeper recesses of the unit and called themselves the Shit Faces. From time to time they smeared dung on themselves and ran amok, clubbing men, women, and children born down under to death. It was rumored they ate human flesh. We had a police force of sorts, but it didn't do much. It didn't have much sense of authority. Worse, we all viewed ourselves as deserving victims. Except for Mary, we had all helped to blow up the world. Mary came to hate me. She came to the conclusion I had killed Ray. It was a realization that grew in her like a drip, growing and growing until it became a gushing flood of hate. She seldom talked to me. She tacked up a picture of Ray and looked at it most of the time. Topside, she had been an artist, and she took that up again. 
She rigged a kit of tools and inks and became a tattooist. Everyone came to her for a mark, and though each was different, they all seemed to indicate one thing. I fucked up. I blew up the world. Brand me. Day in and day out, she did her tattoos, having less and less to do with me, pushing herself more and more into this work until she was as skilled with skin and needles as she had been topside with brush and canvas. And one night, as we lay on our separate pallets, feigning sleep, she said to me, I just want you to know how much I hate you. I know, I said. You killed Ray. I know. You say you killed her, you bastard. Say it. I killed her, I said, and meant it. Next day, I asked for my tattoo. I told her of this dream that came to me nightly. There would be darkness, and out of this darkness would come a swirl of glowing clouds, and the clouds would melt into a mushroom shape, and out of that, torpedo-shaped, nose-pointing skyward, striding on ridiculous cartoon legs, would step the bomb. There was a face painted on the bomb, and it was my face. And suddenly the dream's point of view would change, and I would be looking out of the eyes of that painted face. Before me was my daughter, naked, lying on the ground, her legs wide apart, her sex glazed like a wet canyon. And I slash the bomb would dive into her, pulling those silly feet after me, and she would scream. I could hear it echo as I plunged through her belly, finally driving myself out of the top of her head, then blowing to terminal orgasm. And the dream would end where it began. A mushroom cloud. Darkness. When I told Mary the dream and asked her to interpret it in her art, she said, bear your back, and that's how the design began. An inch of work at a time. A painful inch. She made sure of that. Never once did I complain. She'd send the needles home as hard and deep as she could. And though I might moan or cry out, I never asked her to stop. I could feel those fine hands touching my back, and I loved it. The needles, the hands. And if that was so much fun, you ask, why did I come topside? You ask such probing questions, Mr. Journal. Really, you do, and I'm glad you asked that. My telling will be like a laxative, I hope. Maybe if I just let the shit flow, I'll wake up tomorrow and feel a lot better about myself. Sure. And it will be the dawning of a new Pepsi generation as well. It will have all been a bad dream. The alarm clock will ring. I'll get up, have my bowl of Rice Krispies, and tie my tie. Okay, Mr. Journal, the answer. Twenty years or so after we went down under... A fistful of us decided it couldn't be any worse topside than it was below. We made plans to go see. Simple as that. Mary and I even talked a little. We both entertained the crazed belief Ray might have survived. She would be thirty-eight. We might have been hiding below like vermin for no reason. It could be a brave new world up there. I remember thinking these things, Mr. Journal, and half believing them. We outfitted two sixty-foot crafts that were used as part of our transportation system down under, plugged in the half-remembered codes that opened the elevators, and drove the vehicles inside. The elevator lasers cut through the debris above them, and before long we were topside. The doors opened to sunlight muted by gray-green clouds and a desert-like landscape. Immediately I knew there was no brave new world over the horizon. 
It had all gone to hell in a fiery handbasket, and all that was left of man's millions of years of development were a few pathetic humans living down under like worms, and a few others crawling topside like the same. We cruised about a week, and finally came to what had once been the Pacific Ocean, only there wasn't any water now, just that cracked blackness. We drove along the shore for another week, and finally saw life, a whale. Jacobs immediately got the idea to shoot one and taste its meat. Using a high-powered rifle, he killed it, and he and seven others cut slabs off it, brought the meat back to cook. They invited all of us to eat, but the meat looked greenish and there wasn't much blood, and we warned him against it. But Jacobs and the others ate it anyway. As Jacobs said, it's something to do. A little later on, Jacobs threw up blood, and his intestines boiled out of his mouth, and not long after, those who had shared the meat had the same thing happen to them. They died crawling on their bellies like gutted dogs. There wasn't a thing we could do for them. We couldn't even bury them. The ground was too hard. We stacked them like cordwood along the shoreline and moved camp down away, tried to remember how remorse felt. And that night, while we slept as best we could, the roses came. Now, let me admit, Mr. Journal, I do not actually know how the roses survived, but I have an idea. And since you've agreed to hear my story, and even if you haven't, you're going to anyway, I'm going to put logic and fantasy together and hope to arrive at the truth. These roses lived in the ocean bed underground, and at night they came out. Up until then they had survived as parasites of reptiles and animals, but a new food had arrived from down under, humans, their creators, actually. Looking at it that way, you might say we were the gods who conceived them, and their partaking of our flesh and blood was but a new version of wine and wafer. I can imagine the pulsating brains pushing up through the sea bottom on thick stalks, extending feathery feelers, and tasting the air out there beneath the light of the moon, which through those odd clouds gave the impression of a pus-filled boil, and I can imagine them uprooting and dragging their vines across the ground toward the shore where the corpses lay. Thick vines sprouted little thorny vines, and these moved up the bank and touched the corpses. Then, with a lashing motion, the thorns tore into the flesh, and the vines, like snakes, slithered through the wounds and inside, secreting a dissolving fluid that turned the innards to the consistency of watery oatmeal. They slurped up the mess and the vines grew and grew at amazing speed, moved and coiled throughout the bodies, replacing nerves and shaping into the symmetry of the muscles they had devoured. And lastly, they pushed up through the necks into the skulls, ate tongues and eyeballs, and sucked up the mouse-gray brains like soggy gruel. With an explosion of skull shrapnel, the roses bloomed their tooth-hard petals expanding into beautiful red and yellow flowers, hunks of human heads dangling from them like shattered watermelon rinds. In the center of these blooms, a fresh black brain pulsed, and feathery feelers once again tasted air for food and breeding grounds. Energy waves from the floral brains shot through the miles and miles of vines that were knotted inside the bodies, and as they had replaced nerves, muscles, and vital organs, they made the bodies stand. 
Then those corpses turned their flowered heads toward the tents where we slept. And the blooming corpses, another little scientist joke there if you're into English idiom, Mr. Journal, walked, eager to add the rest of us to their animated bouquet. I saw my first roast head while I was taking a leak. I had left the tent and gone down by the shoreline to relieve myself when I caught sight of it out of the corner of my eye. Because of the bloom, I first thought it was Susan Dyer's. She wore a thick, woolly afro that surrounded her head like a lion's mane, and the shape of the thing struck me as her silhouette. But when I zipped and turned, it wasn't an afro. It was a flower blooming out of Jacob's. I recognized him by his clothes and the hunk of his face that hung off one of the petals like a worn-out hat on a peg. In the center of the blood-red flower was a pulsating sack, and all around it little wormy things squirmed. Directly below the brain was a thin proboscis. It extended toward me like an erect penis. At its tip, just inside the opening, were a number of large thorns. A sound like a moan came out of that proboscis, and I stumbled back. Jacobs's body quivered briefly as if he had been besieged by a sudden chill, and ripping through his flesh and clothes from neck to foot was a mass of thorny, wagging vines that shot out to five feet in length. With an almost invisible motion, they waved from west to east, slashed my clothes, tore my hide, knocked my feet out from beneath me. It was like being hit by a cat of nine tails. Dazed, I rolled onto my hands and knees, bare-walked away from it. The vines whipped against my back and butt, cut deep. Every time I got to my feet, they tripped me. The thorns not only cut, they burned like hot ice picks. I finally twisted away from a net of vines, slammed through one last shot, and made a break for it. Without realizing it, I was running back to the tent. My body felt as if I had been lying on a bed of nails and razor blades. My forearm hurt something terrible where I had used it to lash the thorns away from me, I glanced down at it as I ran. It was covered in blood. A strand of vine about two feet in length was coiled around it like a garter snake. A thorn had torn a deep wound in my arm, and the vine was sliding an end into the wound. Screaming, I held my forearm in front of me like I had just discovered it. The flesh where the vine had entered rippled and made a bulge that looked like a junkie's favorite vein. The pain was nauseating. I snatched at the vine, ripped it free. The thorns turned against me like fish hooks. The pain was so much I fell to my knees, but I had the vine out of me. It squirmed in my hand, and I felt a thorn gouge my palm. I threw the vine into the dark. Then I was up and running for the tent again. The roses must have been at work for quite some time before I saw Jacobs, because when I broke back into camp yelling, I saw Susan, Ralph, Casey, and some others, and already their heads were blooming. "'skulls cracking away like broken model kits. "'Jane Calloway was facing a rose-possessed corpse, "'and the dead body had its hands on her shoulders, "'and the vines were jetting out of the corpse, "'weaving around her like a web, "'tearing, sliding inside her, breaking off. "'The proboscis poked into her mouth "'and extended down her throat, forced her head back. "'The scream she started came out a gurgle. "'I tried to help her, But when I got close, the vines whipped at me and I had to jump back. I looked for something to grab, to hit the damn thing with, but there was nothing. When next I looked at Jane, vines were stabbing out of her eyes, 
and her tongue, now nothing more than lava-thick blood, was dripping out of her mouth onto her breasts, which, like the rest of her body, was riddled with stabbing vines. I ran away then. There was nothing I could do for Jane. I saw others embraced by corpse hands and tangles of vines. But now my only thought was Mary. Our tent was to the rear of the campsite, and I ran there as fast as I could. She was lumbering out of our tent when I arrived. The sound of screams had awakened her. When she saw me running, she froze. By the time I got to her, two vine-riddled corpses were coming up on the tent from the left side. Grabbing her hand, I half-pulled, half-dragged her away from there. I got to one of the vehicles and pushed her inside. I locked the doors just as Jacobs, Susan, Jane, and others appeared at the windshield. Leaning over the rocket-nose hood, the feelers around the brain sacks vibrating like streamers in a high wind. Hands slid greasily down the windshield. Vines flopped and scratched and cracked against it like thin bicycle chains. I got the vehicle started, stomped the accelerator, and the rose heads went flying. One of them, Jacobs, bounced over the hood and splattered into a spray of flesh, ichor, and petals. I had never driven the vehicle, so my maneuvering was rusty, but it didn't matter. There wasn't exactly a traffic rush to worry about. After an hour or so, I turned to look at Mary. She was staring at me, her eyes like the twin barrels of a double-barreled shotgun. They seemed to say, more of your doing, and in a way she was right. I drove on. Daybreak we came to the lighthouse. I don't know how it survived, one of those quirks. Even the glass was unbroken. It looked like a great stone finger shooting us the bird. The vehicle's tank was near empty, so I assumed here was as good a place to stop as any. At least there was shelter, something we could fortify. Going on until the vehicle was empty of fuel didn't make much sense. There wouldn't be any more fill-ups, and there might not be any more shelter like this. Mary and I, in our usual silence, unloaded the supplies from the vehicle and put them in the lighthouse. There was enough food, water, chemicals for the chemical toilet, odds and ends, extra clothes to last us a year. There were also some guns, a Colt forty-five revolver, two twelve-gauge shotguns and a thirty-eight, and enough shells to fight a small war. When everything was unloaded, I found some old furniture downstairs and, using tools from the vehicle, tried to barricade the bottom door and the one at the top of the stairs. When I finished, I thought of a line from a story I had once read, a line that always disturbed me. It went something like, Now we're shut in for the night. Days, nights, all the same. Shut in with one another, our memories, and the fine tattoo. A few days later, I spotted the roses. It was as if they had smelled us out. And maybe they had. From a distance, through the binoculars, they reminded me of old women in bright sun hats. It took them the rest of the day to reach the lighthouse, and they immediately surrounded it. And when I appeared at the railing, they would lift their heads and moan. And that, Mr. Journal, brings us up to now. I thought I had written myself out, Mr. Journal, told the only part of my life story I would ever tell. But now I'm back. You can't keep a good world destroyer down. I saw my daughter last night, and she's been dead for years. But I saw her, I did, naked, smiling at me, calling to ride piggyback. Here's what happened. It was cold last night, must be getting a long winter. 
I had rolled off my pallet onto the cold floor. Maybe that's what brought me awake, the cold, or maybe it was just gut instinct. It had been a particularly wonderful night with the tattoo. The face had been made so clear it seemed to stand out from my back. It had finally become more defined than the mushroom cloud. The needles went in hard and deep, but I've had them in me so much now I barely feel the pain. After looking in the mirror at the beauty of the design, I went to bed happy, or as happy as I can get. During the night, the eyes ripped open. The stitches came out, and I didn't know it until I tried to rise from the cold stone floor and my back puckered against it where the blood had dried. I pulled myself free and got up. It was dark, but we had a good moon spill that night, and I went to the mirror to look. It was bright enough that I could see Ray's reflection clearly the color of her face, the color of the cloud. The stitches had fallen away, and now the wounds were spread wide, and inside the wounds were eyes. Oh, God, raised blue eyes. Her mouth smiled at me, and her teeth were very white. Oh, I hear you, Mr. Journal, I hear what you're saying. And I thought of that. My first impression was that I was about six bricks shy a load, gone around the old bend. But I know better now. You see, I lit a candle and held it over my shoulder, and with the candle and the moonlight I could see even more clearly. It was Ray, all right. Not just a tattoo. I looked over at my wife on the bunk, her back to me as always. She had not moved. I turned back to the reflection. I could hardly see the outline of myself, just Ray's face smiling out of that cloud. Ray, I whispered, is that you? Come on, Daddy, said the mouth in the mirror. That's a stupid question. Of course it's me. But you're... you're... Dead? Yes. Did... did it hurt much? She cackled so loudly the mirror shook. I could feel the hairs on my neck rising. I thought for sure Mary would wake up, but she slept on. It was instantaneous, Daddy. And even then it was the greatest pain imaginable. Let me show you how it hurt. The candle blew out and I dropped it. I didn't need it anyway. The mirror grew bright and Ray's smile went from ear to ear, literally. And the flesh on her bones seemed like crepe paper before a powerful fan. And that fan blew the hair off her head, the skin off her skull, and melted those beautiful blue eyes and those shiny white teeth of hers to a putrescent goo the color and consistency of fresh bird shit. Then there was only the skull, and it heaved in half and flew backwards into the dark world of the mirror, and there was no reflection now, only the hurtling fragments of a life that once was and was now nothing more than swirling cosmic dust. I closed my eyes and looked away. Daddy? I opened them looked over my shoulder into the mirror. There was Ray again, smiling out of my back. Darling, I said, I'm so sorry. So are we, she said. And there were faces floating past her in the mirror. Teenagers, children, men and women, babies, little embryos swirling around her head like planets around the sun. I closed my eyes again, but I could not keep them closed. When I opened them, the multitudes of swirling dead and those who had never had a chance to live were gone. 
Only Ray was there. Come close to the mirror, Daddy. I backed up to it. I backed until the hot wounds that were Ray's eyes touched the cold glass, and the wounds became hotter and hotter, and Ray called out, Ride me piggy, Daddy! And then I felt her weight on my back. Not the weight of a six-year-old child or a teenage girl, but a great weight, like the world was on my shoulders and bearing down. Leaping away from the mirror, I went hopping and whooping about the room, same as I used to do in the park. Around and around I went, and as I did, I glanced in the mirror. Astride me was Ray, lithe and naked, her red hair fanning around her as I spun. And when I whirled by the mirror again, I saw that she was six years old. Another spin, and there was a skeleton with red hair, one hand held high, the jaws open, and yelling, "'Rat him, cowboy!' How, I managed, still bucking and leaping, giving Ray the ride of her life. She bent to my ear, and I could feel her warm breath. You want to know how I'm here, Daddy dear? I'm here because you created me. Once you laid between Mother's legs and thrust me into existence, the two of you, with all the love there was in you. This time you thrust me into existence with your guilt and Mother's hate, her thrusting needles. You're arching back. And now I've come back for one last ride, Daddy-o. Ride, you bastard, ride. All the while I had been spinning, and now as I glimpsed the mirror I saw wall-to-wall faces weaving in, weaving out like smiling stars, and all those faces opened wide and words came out in chorus. Where were you when they dropped the big one? Each time I spun and saw the mirror again, it was a new scene. Great flaming winds scorching across the world, babies turning to fleshy jello, heaps of charred bones, brains boiling out of the heads of men and women like backed-up toilets overflowing. The almighty, glory hallelujah, ours is bigger than yours bomb, hurtling forward, the mirror going mushroom white, then clear, and me, spinning, ray pressed tight against my back, melting like butter on a griddle, evaporating into the eye wounds on my back, and finally me alone, collapsing to the floor beneath the weight of the world. Mary never awoke. The vines outsmarted me. A single strand found a crack downstairs somewhere and wound up the steps and slipped beneath the door that led into the tower. Mary's bunk was not far from the door, And in the night, while I slept, and later while I spun in front of the mirror and lay on the floor before it, it made its way to Mary's bunk, up between her legs, and entered her sex effortlessly. I suppose I should give the vine credit for doing what I had not been able to do in years, Mr. Journal, and that's enter Mary. Oh, God, that's a funny one, Mr. Journal. Real funny. Another little scientist joke. Let's make that a mad scientist joke, what say? Who but a madman would play with the lives of human beings by constantly trying to build the bigger and better boom machine? So what of Ray, you ask? I'll tell you. She's inside me. My back feels the weight. She twists in my guts like a corkscrew. I went to the mirror a moment ago, and the tattoo no longer looks like it did. The eyes have turned to crusty sores, and the entire face looks like a scab. 
It's as if the bile that made up my soul, the unthinking nearsightedness, the guilt that I am, has festered from inside and spoiled the picture with pustule bumps, knots, and scabs. To put it in layman's terms, Mr. Journal, my back is infected. Infected with what I am. A blind, senseless fool. The wife? Ah, the wife. God, how I loved that woman. I have not really touched her in years. Merely felt those wonderful hands on my back as she jabbed the needles home. But I never stopped loving her. It was not a love that glowed any more, but it was there, though hers for me was long gone and wasted. This morning when I got up from the floor, the weight of Ray and the world on my back, I saw the vine coming up from beneath the door and stretching over to her. I yelled her name. She did not move. I ran to her and saw it was too late. Before I could put a hand on her, I saw her flesh ripple and bump up like a den of mice were nesting under a quilt. The vines were at work. Out go the old guts, in go the new vines. There was nothing I could do for her. I made a torch out of a chair leg and old quilt, set fire to it, burned the vine from between her legs, watched it retreat, smoking under the door. Then I got a board nailed it along the bottom, hoping it would keep others out for at least a little while. I got one of the twelve gauges and loaded it. It's on the desk beside me, Mr. Journal, but even I know I'll never use it. It was just something to do, as Jacob said when he killed and ate the whale. Something to do. I can hardly write any more. My back and shoulders hurt so bad. It's the weight of Ray and the world. I've just come back from the mirror, and there is very little left of the tattoo. Some blue and black ink, a touch of red that was Ray's hair. It looks like an abstract painting now. Collapsed design, running colors. It's real swollen. I look like the hunchback of Notre Dame. What am I going to do, Mr. Journal? Well, as always, I'm glad you asked that. You see, I've thought this out. I could throw Mary's body over the railing before it blooms, I could do that. Then I could doctor my back. It might even heal, though I doubt it. Ray wouldn't let that happen, I can tell you now. And I don't blame her. I'm on her side. I'm just a walking dead man and have been for years. I could put the shotgun under my chin and work the trigger with my toes or maybe push it with the very pen I'm using to create you, Mr. Journal. Wouldn't that be neat? Blow my brains to the ceiling and sprinkle you with my blood? But as I said, I loaded the gun because it was something to do. I'd never use it on myself or Mary. You see, I want Mary. I want her to hold Ray and me one last time like she used to in the park. And she can. There's a way. I've drawn all the curtains and made curtains out of blankets for those spots where there aren't any. It'll be sun up soon, and I don't want that kind of light in here. I'm writing this by candlelight, and it gives the entire room a warm glow. I wish I had wine. I want the atmosphere to be just right. Over on Mary's bunk, she's starting to twitch. Her neck is swollen where the vines have congested and are writhing toward their favorite morsel, the brain. Pretty soon the rose will bloom. I hope she's one of the bright yellow ones. Yellow was her favorite color, and she wore it well. And Mary will come for me. When she does, 
I'll stand with my naked back to her. The vines will whip out and cut me before she reaches me, but I can stand it. I'm used to pain. I'll pretend the thorns are Mary's needles. I'll stand that way until she folds her dead arms around me and her body pushes up against the wound she made in my back, the wound that is our daughter, Ray. She'll hold me so the vines and the proboscis can do their work. And while she holds me, I'll grab her fine hands and push them against my chest, and it will be we three again, standing against the world. And I'll close my eyes and delight in her soft, soft hands one last time. This has been a production of Lightspeed Magazine in association with Skyboat Road Company, Inc. To subscribe to this podcast, comment on this story, or read additional stories from Lightspeed Magazine, please visit lightspeedmagazine.com. Thanks for listening. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.